From Pasch to Samartan's Conversion, Part 5, The Parable of the Unjust Steward. Even as a child, I saw this and the other parables passing like living scenes before my eyes, and I used to think that, here and there, I recognized occasional figures from them in the life around me. And so it happened also with this steward, whom I have always seen as a hunchback with a reddish beard, a receiver of revenues. I used to see him running very briskly and rapidly among the under-tenants, making them sign their contracts with a pen. I saw the unjust steward living in a tent castle in the desert of Arabia, not far from the place where the children of Israel murmured. His lord, who dwelt far away across Mount Libanus, owned here on the frontiers of Palestine a corn and olive plantation. On either side of the field lived two peasants to whom it was rented. The steward was a diminutive, humpbacked fellow, very cunning and full of expedients. He thought, The Lord will not come yet a while, and so he feasted freely and let things go as they would. The two peasants were pretty much of the same stamp, and spent their time in carousing. On a sudden, I saw the Lord coming. Far over a high mountain range, I saw a magnificent city and palace, from which a most beautiful road led straight to the plantation. Then I saw the king and his whole court coming down with a great caravan of camels and little, little chariots drawn by asses. I saw all this very much as I see paths coming down from the heavenly Jerusalem. The king was a heavenly king, who owned a wheat and olive field on this earth. But he came in the manner of the patriarchal kings, attended by a great retinue. I saw him coming down from on high, for that little fellow, the steward, had been accused to him of dissipating his revenues. The Lord's debtors were two persons in long coats buttoned all the way down. The steward wore a little cap. The castle of the latter was nearer the desert than the wheat and olive plantation, on either side of which the peasants lived. It was more toward the land of Canaan, and formed a triangle with the castle. Now came the Lord down over the cornfield. The two debtors had squandered the fruits of the field with the steward, although toward their dependents they were hard and exacting. They were two bad parish priests, and the steward a bishop far from good, or again, it was like a worldling putting his affairs in order. The steward, having espied the coming of his lord, while yet he was a long way off, fell into the greatest anxiety. He prepared a grand feast, and became very active and servile. When the lord arrived, he thus addressed the steward, Why? What is this that I hear of thee, that thou dost squander my property? Render an account, for thou shalt no longer be my steward. And I saw the steward hurriedly summoning the two peasants. They presented themselves, carrying rolls, which they opened. He questioned them as to the amount of their indebtedness, for of that he was utterly ignorant, and they showed it to him. With the crooked reed that he held in his hand, he made them quickly change the sum to a lesser amount. For he thought, When I shall be discharged, I shall find shelter with them, and have whereon to live, for I cannot work. I saw now the peasants sending their servants to the Lord with camels and asses, laden with sacks of corn and baskets of olives. They that had charge of the olives carried money also, little metal bars done up in packages, larger or smaller, according to their sum, and fastened together with rings. But the Lord, glancing at the packages, saw by what he had before received that these were far too small, 
that from the false account rendered, he understood the design of the steward. Turning to his courtiers, he said with a laugh, See, the man is shrewd and cunning. He intends to make friends of those under him. The children of the world are wiser in their doings than the children of light, who rarely do for good what the former do for evil, who rarely take as much trouble for a reward as this man has done for punishment. Then I saw that the hunchback knave was discharged from his office and banished into the desert. The soil there was metallic, yellow, hard, unfruitful, ferruginous, and sand ochre. Its only vegetation, the alder tree. He was at first quite confounded and troubled, but I saw that afterward he set to work to chop wood and to build. Two peasants also were sent away, though to them somewhat better places amidst the sand of the desert were allotted. But the poor underservants, formerly the victims of cruel extortion, were now entrusted with the care of the field. Part 6. Jesus and the Disciples Invited to Teach and Baptize, in Seleucia. Jesus and the disciples separated and went in different directions throughout the whole city of Adama. Jesus took the central portions for himself, while the disciples went to the most distant quarters, even as far as the homes of the heathens. They stopped at almost every house, inviting the people, who were already prepared, to go on the following day to the baptism, and then on the day after to the great instruction that Jesus was to deliver in a larger grassy enclosure on the other side of the lake near Seleucia. The invitations were accompanied by words of instruction. The disciples were thus occupied until dusk when they left the city and proceeded along the western side of the lake to where some fishing vessels were lying. They went on board and instructed the fishermen who were fishing by torchlight on the broad side of the lake, below the spot where the Jordan flowed into it. The glare of the torches allured the fish, which were then taken with hooks and darts. The disciples told the fishermen to bring their fish over to the green square near Seleucia, where the instruction was to be held, and they should be well rewarded. The green square, which they made mention, was a kind of zoological garden surrounded by a wall and hedge. Wild animals taken alive were confined there. Consequently, it was provided with all kinds of dens and cages for that purpose. The place belonged to Adama was about one hour and a half from Seleucia. When morning dawned, Jesus joined the disciples, and they went back to the city together by a roundabout way on which were several huts. Invitations and instructions were given at these huts, as at the other houses. Arrived at the city, Jesus and the disciples went to the residence of the governor, which stood in an open square, and there took some refreshment. The repast consisted of little rolls joined in pairs, and small fish with upright heads. These last were served in a many-colored, shining glass dish, formed like a ship. Jesus laid one of the fishes on a roll before each of the disciples. All around the edge of the table were cavities hollowed out like plates, and into them the portions were put. After the repast, Jesus gave an instruction in the hall opening on the court in presence of the governor and his household, all of whom were to be baptized. After that, he went to the place of instruction outside the city where he found many already waiting for him, and there, too, he taught in preparation for baptism. The people and bands came and went by turns, proceeding from this place to the synagogue, where they prayed, sprinkled their head with ashes, and did penance. They repaired afterward to the bathing garden, near the place of grace, 
where two by two they perform their ablutions in a bathhouse separated from each other by a curtain. When the last band had left the place of instruction, Jesus and his disciples followed. Baptismal woe was that into which the water from the arm of the Jordan flowed. The basin here, as in other places, was surrounded by a canal so broad as to afford a passage for two, and from it five conduits connected with the basin. These conduits could be opened or closed at pleasure, at the side of each ran a path over the little canal. In the center of the basin rose a stake which, by a cross piece that reached to the bank, could be made to open and close the basin. This reservoir with its five canals had not been especially constructed for the baptism. The number five was a frequent recurrence in Palestine, and the five aqueducts leading to the Pool of Bethsaida, to John's Fountain in the desert, to the baptismal well of Jesus, bore reference no doubt to the five sacred wounds, or to some other mystery of religion. Jesus here gave instructions as an immediate preparation for baptism. The neophytes were clothed in long mantles, which they laid aside at the moment of stepping into the canal, retaining only the covering for the loins and the little scapular on the breast. Water from the basin had been left into the canal. On the pathways over it stood the baptizers and the sponsors. The water was thrice poured from a shallow dish over the head in the name of Jehovah and him whom he had sent. Four disciples baptized at the same time, two others imposing hands as sponsors. The ceremony, with the instructions of Jesus in preparation for it, lasted until evening. Many of the aspirants to baptism were not admitted to its reception. At daybreak next morning, the disciples embarked for Seleucia and the appointed place nearby. The lake at some distance from Adama took the figure of a violin, narrowing off to about fifteen minutes in breadth. Seleucia, a city of only moderate importance, was, however, a well-fortified place, being surrounded by two walls and an intervening rampart. On the northern side, especially, it was so steep as to be wholly inaccessible. In that corner the pagan soldiers dwelt. The women lived to themselves in a separate part of the city, in long rows of buildings, each occupying a private apartment. The few Jews here residing here were very greatly oppressed. They lived in miserable holes in the walls, and had to perform the lowest and most painful labors on the canals and marshes. I saw no synagogue here, but only a round temple, which stood on a circle of pillars, upon which were enormous figures in the attitude of supporting the building. In the center was an immense column, in which were the steps led up into the edifice. Underneath were subterranean vaults, where the urns containing the ashes of the dead were deposited. Nearby was a somber-looking place, in which they were accustomed to consume the bodies of their dead. In the temple were idols of serpents with human faces, human figures surmounted by dogs' heads, and one holding the moon and a fish. The soil around these parts was not very productive, though the inhabitants were remarkably industrious. They made all kinds of cordage for the harness of horses, as well as various kinds of armor, everything necessary for military equipments. The disciples went around in Seleucia, inviting the people to the instruction, and to partake of their past prepared at the appointed place. Meanwhile, Jesus went for the same purpose through the pagan quarters at Adama. Then the disciples repaired to the grassy enclosure of the zoological garden, which was beautifully sodded and filled with flowers and bushes, and there, with the fishermen who kept their fish in a cistern, prepared the meal. The tables were broad beams about two feet wide that had been drawn up out of the lake. 
back of the garden were furnaces in which the fish were roasted. It appeared as if meals were often prepared here, for in the caves around were kept a number of flat stone plates, which looked as if formed by nature, and upon which the viands were served up. There were at this repast bread, fish, herbs, and fruit. When all had been repaired, and about a hundred of the pagan men were assembled, Jesus came over the lake. He was followed by about twelve Jews, the governor, and several heathens from Adama. He taught on a hill. The governor and the other Jews took part in the management of the repast, and served at table with the disciples. Jesus taught of man's twofold composition, body and soul, and of the nourishment of both, the one and the other. The people were free either to listen to his instruction or to partake of the meal. Jesus granted that permission to try them. Some went straight to the table, and others soon followed, so that about a third only remained to hear. Jesus taught of the location of the heathens, and told about the three kings, whose history was not unknown to these people. When the meal and instruction were over, Jesus went toward evening with the disciples and Jews to Seleucia, an hour and a half to the south, and at some distance from the lake. The people had already turned thither. Here Jesus and his party were received by the most distinguished men of the city, and a luncheon was served for their refreshment. After that they were conducted into the city, and Jesus saluted and instructed the heathen women, who had assembled in a square not far from the gate in order to see him. They were clothed as Jewesses, though not so modestly veiled. Like most of the people of this region, they were not tall, but stout and robust. Jesus entered a large public hall, where a banquet had been prepared in his honor. There was a great deal of feasting going on in these parts. Jesus, the disciples, and the Jews sat by themselves at one of the tables. At first, the Jews were unwilling to partake of the entertainment. But Jesus told them that what entered the mouth did not sully the man, and added that they who would not eat with him would not follow his doctrine. He taught unweariedly during the whole of the entertainment. The heathens used tables higher than those of the Jews, and also some small single ones. They sat cross-legged on cushions, like the people in the land of the three kings. The viands consisted of fish, herbs, honey, fruit, and also flesh meat roasted brown. Jesus so impressed them by his teaching that they were very much grieved when he had to leave. They begged him so earnestly to remain with them that he allowed Andrew and Nathaniel to do so. The heathens were very curious when there was a question of novelty. It was already dusk when he left them. The houses in which the women dwelt faced on a broad street, though their rear was built in the wall of the rampart of the fortification. Some of them were very beautiful, separated at intervals by gardens and squares in which the women carried on their domestic affairs and did their washing. Jesus addressed them in their usual meeting place. In Seleucia also, Jesus spoke of the baptism as of a purification, and the wish to detain him longer, he told them that they were at present incapable of understanding more. From Seleucia, Jesus returned to Adama. In the synagogue, a feast of thanksgiving was celebrated by the newly baptized who occupied the places of honor and chanted canticles of praise. Numbers of others were baptized when Andrew and Nathaniel returned from Seleucia. The converted Jew exhibited naught but humility and a desire to render assistance to Jesus, delighted to act as servant and messenger on all occasions. A great number of sick had been unable to attend Jesus' instruction in the baptism. Consequently, with Saturnin and the disciple who was related to him, he went to hunt them up in their homes. 
The other disciples started for the cities Zor, Cades, Barotha, and Thisbe, all from two to three hours north of Adama, in order to invite the inhabitants to the instruction which Jesus was going to deliver on a gently rising mountain on the road from Cades to Barotha. On the top of that mountain, which was covered with vegetation and an open space surrounded by a wall, stood a chair used from remote times for teaching. In some places the disciples went to the chief magistrates and called upon them to invite the people to the instruction that the prophet from Galilee would deliver on the mountain the day after the Sabbath, while in others they themselves went to the houses and invited the occupants to the instruction. Meanwhile, Jesus was going around in Adama among the rich and the poor, Jews and heathens, healing the dropsical, the lame, the blind, and those afflicted with the bloody flux. I was especially surprised at the sight of ten possessed men and women, all of them pure Jews. I never saw so many possessed among the heathens. Some of these ten were of distinguished families. They were confined in graded chambers in their own houses, either in the house or the forecourt. As Jesus was coming toward them, they began crying and raging in a frightful manner. But on nearer approach, they became quiet and stared at him perplexedly. I saw him, by his glance alone, driving all the devils from them. They left them under a visible form, a vapor which afterward assumed the shadow of an abominable human figure, and then disappeared. The bystanders were amazed at the sight. The former possessed turned pale and sank down unconscious. Jesus addressed some words to them, and took them by the hand, and commanded them to rise. Then, as if coming out of a dream, they sank on their knees giving thanks, and rose up, changed men. Jesus then exhorted them, and mentioned the faults they should correct. When the disciples returned to Adama, they took a meal with Jesus, at the chief magistrates. They had purchased fish and bread at the places they had visited, and ordered them to be delivered at the Mount of Instruction. The food was intended for the audience. Jesus received presents from many people in various places. I saw little bars of gold that looked like twigs. These gifts were devoted to the purchase of food for the multitude. Jesus had not broken his fast since the last meal taken at Seleucia. On the Sabbath, he taught in the synagogue of Adama. There was here also a party formed against Jesus. They sent two Pharisees to where John was teaching, in order to hear what he had to say about Jesus, and thence to Bethabara, and Capernaum, to inform some of their friends that he was now going around among them, baptizing and making disciples. When these messengers returned, they spoke against Jesus, and spread the calumnies they had heard. Their efforts gained no adherence to their own party. Once the magistrates of Adama interrogated Jesus as to what he thought of the Assyrians, they wanted to tempt him, because they pretended to have remarked in his sentiments some similarity to those of that sect and also because James the Less, his relative and who was then with him, was an Asinian. They brought all kinds of accusations against them, condemning chiefly their retired life and their celibacy. Jesus answered in very general terms. One could, he said, find nothing to reproach to those people. If they were called to such a life, they deserved great praise. Everyone has his own vocation. Were a cripple to aim at walking upright, he would hardly succeed. When the magistrate objected that so few families were raised up by them, Jesus enumerated a great many Asinian families and spoke of their well-bred children. He alluded to the married state, first of the good, then of the bad. He neither took part with the Asinians, nor did he accuse them. 
the people did not comprehend him, though they saw that he had family connections among the Assyrians and kept up intercourse with them.